Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops, and car stereos as loud as possible. And now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome back, ladies and gents. We're back! Hey! Welcome back to My Favorite Flop. I'm Christina. And I'm Bobby. And we are your hosts for another fabulous failure on this fantastical podcast. All right, Bobby. What have you been listening to? I have been in a little bit of a nostalgic mood. The world has begun to open up again. Uh, Disney theme parks have begun to open up again. I've mentioned this on this podcast. I used to work at Disneyland and uh, I have been listening to Disney's On the Record, uh, which is a show that I discovered when I was a Disney employee. I used to manage the music shop on Main Street and uh, this album came in and I was super excited about it because it wasn't something from the park. It had been a national tour. And, you know, of course, I'd got a discount because I worked at the park. So I got it and I was just so um, do you know the show at all? No. OK, so it's Disney's on the record started as something else, but it became this thing and it was this national tour where they basically crammed in as many Disney songs as they could and there's not really much of a plot other than it's this group of people going into the recording studio to record an album of Disney songs and then okay. they have all these interpersonal relationships with each other and crazy 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 I don't know if it actually works as a show but it crams in so many Disney songs into this thing and I'm just obsessed with it like there are Fuller versions of some songs. There are medleys. Um, famously, you know, a man sings uh, I Won't Say I'm in Love from Hercules. Uh... Um, there's a big um, mashup of silly songs at the end where it's all the nonsensical word Disney songs overlapped on top of each other. And then at one point, they all start singing in counterpoint. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so good. Oh, that's uh, cool. But uh, it was really kind of cool. And then when I went to college, uh, it was like one of those like secret things like, oh, do you know on the record? And I just I remember when I was working in the library at our alma mater when we had gotten the score. And I remember it just being this like super exciting thing. So I don't know. I went down memory lane and was like, I want to get my Disney musical review that didn't play on Broadway, didn't play in the theme parks, only traveled around the country for a little bit. And fun little thing. I love that. It's kind of like what they're doing with Dee Capella now. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like the 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 grandpa to that guy. Yeah. Um, well, OK, so what have you been listening to this week, Christina? Oh, I went back to basics, so okay. to speak. And I listened to Waitress and cried my eyes out and laughed until I cried. So and good. Cried and laughed some more and cried and laughed some more. I mean, it's just it's such a beautiful score for a female in not because of like vocally what it does but the lyrics and sarah Bareilles. Right. i mean she speaks to every female heart i think i i've yet to meet a lady who's like now i hate her you know every every woman i know loves her and loves her songs and they at one point or another one of her songs has gotten them through a significant time in their lives 
not just with men. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, so (laughs) it's one of those scores that I just, I really love. And your love is a table is just perfection. Absolute perfection. That character speaks to me on so many levels. <laughs> it's a it's a magical piece of theater. And it was so cool to see that open on Broadway because she it was a self-admitted musical theater geek throughout yes. her entire career. And always Well, she went to UCLA. Oh, did she? For musical theater. She went okay. to UCLA. That absolutely makes sense. And she always would like sneak in, like, I'm going to sing part of your world during this concert, or I'm going to do this. And so then she was inspired. You know, she was inspired by um, Cyndi Lauper winning the Tony Award for Kinky Boots. No, that I did not know. But that makes sense. Yeah. To do it. And what was awesome, I think, about Waitress is that the entire creative team was female. Uh, I didn't know if you knew that, but I did know that. And that is another reason why I love that show, because guess what? Friends, an entire female creative team can be successful on Broadway. We need more office hits. How many times did you see that? Because I think I've seen it about three or four times. I've not actually seen it in person. (gasps) Gasp. Gasp. I know. Well, I hope one day you get to either do the show or see the show. And if you see it, I hope that whatever regional theater or tour or whatever does what they did on Broadway, where they make the entire lobby smell like an apple pie is being baked. Because you know they did that, right? No, but that makes oh, complete sense. Christina, there they were they were like, there was no chandelier moment. There was no alphaba. They're like, so how do we up the game for this? They employed this like famous female uh chef in New York to come up with a pie that was not edible, but would have the the most aromatic experience and they literally built a kitchen behind the box office and they baked it right before the audience came in every night so as you're walking into the theater you are just overwhelmed with the smell of a freshly baked apple pie talk about like striving for excellence ladies and gents let's move on to the clues and i'm gonna let you start this week because i feel like i start them all the time and that's probably not true but that's my feeling so we're gonna go with it okay fine all right Clue number one, which we gave at the end of the last episode, was Angela Lansbury, Betty Buckley, and Tyne Daly have all starred in professional productions of this musical. Which was followed by clue number two, which was a quote from the Bible of Broadway flops, Not Since Carrie by Ken Mandelbaum. And it was this, those who saw it may never be able to forget the sight of Lansbury draped in a nine-foot feather boa, confronting a lost lover in her sleep. Now, I don't know about you, but what's the point of a boa if it's not nine feet, right? I mean, obviously. Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The photo clue on Instagram was an illustration of the Mad Tea Party from Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. Which you may have gotten the show at this point, but we're going to continue on. We're going to keep going. That's a pretty good one. Uh, Clue number four was my blog post that we put on Facebook, and it was titled Five Composers with Three or More, in parentheses, Musicals Open on Broadway at the Same Time. Now, many of those composers are going to be featured on My Favorite Flops, so uh, pay attention because those might be clues to future episodes. Dun, dun, dun. And then finally, in case you haven't figured it out by now, a film adaptation of the play that this musical is based on, starring Katherine Hepburn, came out the same year and also flopped. Poor, poor movie. All right. <laughs> Shall we tell them what it is? All right. Yes. Drum roll, please. Drum roll, please. 
This is a crazy musical, and I feel like it has a crazy story. So before we jump in, Christina, I think you should just give them the plot of the show. Yes. Dear World is based on a French play called The Mad Woman is Shio. You kind of get a lot from that title. Absolutely. The musical is about the Countess Aurelia, a.k.a. Angela Lansbury. Pause, plus pretty much every other Broadway diva since, but continue. Yes, and. So Countess Aurelia lives in a basement of a bistro. She is blissfully in her own world because she has been driven mad with love for the lost lover, Sewerman. Which, I mean, basically every Broadway tenor should be called Sewerman, right? <laughs> sure. Aurelia's world and bliss are threatened when the corporation discover there is oil underneath the cafe. They want to blow it up to get to the oil. Aurelia decides to help a young man, Julian, who has fallen in love with the waitress at the cafe, Nina, by banding together with her fellow madwoman to lure these corrupt villains into the sewers where they vanish and the danger is gone, at least for the moment. So it's kind of a loose plot, you know, it's not super dense. Okay, so... You just gave this, and I'm listening to you do it, and obviously I, I knew what the plot is going into this record, but I'm like, this is really similar to Sweeney Todd. Like, leading yeah. people into sewers, <laughs> crazy people, I don't know. Um, same, this same, is like the really. Same, same, prequel, maybe, I don't know. Uh, this is a this is an odd show, and, and literally listening to it, it sounds like it would make a fascinating musical, right? Yeah. I think so. I mean, okay, so the play that it's based on came out in 1943. Um, and it by Jean, I'm gonna, I'm not good at French, Girardot. Um, but anyways, it was a it was a French play that also has been adapted into English and has been done sure. stateside. It is very much almost like a dream play, almost Ibsen-like. Right. And it is very much a commentary play and is supposed to be poking at the bear, so to speak, because it came out in 1943, which was during the German occupation in Paris. Right. And it was, you know, uh, Jean, Jean Girardot. I don't know how to say it. I think either. that's right. We're going to say that's right. But it was basically his commentary to what would happen to Paris after the Nazi occupation of of. of France, you know, yeah. that they were going to tear down all the beautiful buildings and get rid of the history and yeah, oil. They, they really took over the city and they drew, they drove, they basically paid off the government, right? And they all left the city and they were like, cool, you can have it. Thanks so much. We're just going to go out here in the country, be safe. And you can take care of all those people in the city. I mean, we love French musicals about French turmoil. I mean, Les Mis is a big fat hit, right? Right. Uh, so this this feasibly could have been a very successful musical, right? Mm. Um, but it was not. It was it was a flop, and it actually had a super troubled um, road to Broadway in the original Broadway production, uh, and has been revised many times over the years. You know, it's one of those shows that has a score. You know, we've featured some shows like that on this podcast. Anyone Can Whistle being a prime example of that, yeah. where the score is just so good that people are 
always trying to make it work. This is definitely one of those shows. Jerry Herman wrote a beautiful score. Really uh, beautiful. Shaped around Angela Lansbury, who had really grown into her own. This was high off the wild success of MAME. I mean, they reunited the entire MAME team. I was going to say, it was the same team, wasn't it? Right. And that's actually how this musical came to be. So let's catch ourselves up so that we can continue on because it's a fascinating story, right? Yeah. Um, Jerry Herman actually in college had played the mime character uh, in the play and became obsessed with it. And this was a dream show for Jerry Herman to work on, wanted to write a musical version of it. But the rights had been uh, sold to somebody else, uh, Michelle Legrand and Richard Wilbur, Michelle Legrand being a famous uh, French songwriter, which uh, if you are familiar with any of Michelle Legrand's work, uh, totally makes sense for a project like this musical. He really wanted to do it. And then Mame became this giant hit, uh, really cemented Angela Lansbury as being a musical theater star, musical theater comedian. Uh, it really all clicked with that. I, basically, like he took over Broadway. He could do anything he wanted. Right. And he wanted to do this and was able to obtain the rights. And so now we've caught up there uh, and we can move on to this troubled process from the point of getting the rights to when it opened on Broadway. Well, and this we say that it had the same creative team as Mame, um, but there was another producer on it, Alexander H. Cohen, who ironically has never produced a financially successful book musical on Broadway. Didn't um, know that. Thank you for breaking that up. You are so very welcome. Um, but yes, so... It's it's interesting that like all the other people are Mame and then Alexander, but maybe that's why he was willing to just take the risk and go for it, right? Right. Because um, I would say that if you saw this on paper as a producer, you'd think that's a risk, even with all that's of those true. people attached to it, right? Because of what the story is, and at the time that it was being produced, which was nineteen sixty. Well, I guess when they started the process would have been about 1968, just to keep that in mind as we move forward. Uh, but yes, so they reunited the team and they... Right. So not only was Alexander Cohen a new producer, thank you for that information, uh, Gower Champion, he had done Hello, Dolly, but Gower did not do Tear World. No. Gower's assistant, which this was huge, Gower's assistant, Lucia Victor, woman, woman was put in charge of this and uh, was the first director of several directors chosen to work on the Dear World project. Uh, however, there was a lot of disagreements with Lucia and Angela Lansbury early on, uh, and Lucia was let go from the project. So that I don't even know if they had started rehearsals at that point. I think right. they had just had creative meetings and there was already this not gelling of the two of their personalities uh, that led to her uh, leaving the project and then being replaced by uh, Peter Glenville, uh, who had directed Angela Lansbury in a play on Broadway called Hotel Paradiso. Uh, so Angela famously signed a two-year contract for Dear World. I mean, Mame had been such a big fat hit. Right. Um, famously, Angela had been replaced uh, and done on you know, on tour, Mame had been played by so many fantastic women. Uh, Judy Garland almost replaced Angela Lansbury. Uh, they just couldn't get the insurance for her to do it, but apparently knocked the audition out of the park. Um, I'm not surprised. I feel like this role would really suit 
Judy. Yeah, absolutely. And so they wanted to 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 lock Angela in because she was box office gold. So she signed an unprecedented two year contract uh, to do Dear World on Broadway. She had a lot of like you know weight to throw around because sure. before Mame, you know. Anyone can whistle land. She's a movie star, but not and, and kind of a Broadway star, but not really a Broadway musical star. But now she is. Right. And they are banking on her name. And they had started selling tickets before they even finished writing the show. Uh, famously, they did like giant like spreads and magazines and newspapers of Angela Lansbury and like fur coats and jewelry being like come see Angela and dear world and and they sold lots and lots of tickets there was a little bit of an advance uh, just based on Angela Lansbury's name alone Holy uh, in these cow. glamour shots you know can you imagine can you imagine there being like Sutton Foster is starring in this musical and they just put her in a fur coat and some jewels and be like <laughs> buy the tickets you don't need to know what it's about just Sutton Foster. I mean, that doesn't happen anymore. That with Music Man, where they're like, Sutton Foster and Hugh Jackman are doing a musical. I don't care what it is. Go. I mean, yeah, but we know what the Music Man is. It'd be like, yeah, it would. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Peter Glenville, who Angela Lansbury brings to the project. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know if Peter Glenville had ever directed a musical before, but they definitely did this show in Boston. Try out. Uh, Angela Lansbury famously requested a lot of changes during the process because I, I think people do genuinely love Angela, mm. but the the cast felt every new change that kept coming in made the show make less sense and not work. Mm. Uh, and eventually, at the end of the process, even Angela agreed what they had started with at the beginning of Boston right. was a much better show than what they ended up with. But right. um yeah, so she she had her director come in, had all these changes. The cast members disagreed with it. Uh, and then the show got really negative reviews in Boston. And um, Women's Wear Daily famously printed this gossip, like a uh, piece of gossip, that Angela Lansbury was just miserable with the entire thing and was hoping that they would pull the plug on Broadway so she could get out of her two-year contract. Oh, my goodness. And it offended director Peter Glenville so much that he was I mean, like, fair. well, look, I don't need to do this. I'm not going with the show to Broadway. Uh, and so left after this uh, Boston run uh, and was replaced with Joe Layton. Uh, who, who, ironically, I ended... Okay, so I found some random clips and they are actual, like, not even 30-second clips of the choreography that ended up in this show. And I have to say that Joe Layton's choreography for this show is way ahead of its time one and two just i mean it just looked like so much fun to perform. sure oh my gosh some of it i was like i want in someone teach this who's around let's teach this give a master class please because i want to learn this oh like my it goodness. looked like so much fun it's terrible that it had that he came in in such a tumultuous time though Oof. but then they brought in joe Mastersoft, right who wrote to to fix she loves the book. Me. Right. Right. To fix the book because there were just problems. So now it's not even like the main team anymore. It's right. something It's whoever else. we can get to make it work. Right. Is where really where we're at. So they finally get it to Broadway, right? They get it to Broadway in 1969 in February. Um, and they start previews and they had 45 previews and then they canceled opening night. 
several times, not just yeah. once, too. And the critics were so offended that they kept because, you know, critics aren't allowed to review until opening or, you know, the, the during the press nights. And so the critics were so offended that they kept pushing back the opening night that they threatened to review the show anyway, because they had heard all of this like gossip in the newspapers right. that it wasn't working out. And they're like, we don't care if whether you open or not, we're going to tell people about your show. Right. And this is a time when the, you know, the reviewers had real big weight of yes. whether or not a show was successful. So that's that was pretty crazy. Um, it is. I mean, it's too bad that there was so much, so much hitting of heads between everybody. Like this wasn't just mom and dad are fighting and that's always uncomfortable for the cast. This was like stepmom and huh. the children right. and, you know, the stepchildren and all of the cousins are all now in this massive infight. And that just seeps into the pores of a show. And I think we're actually seeing that in a lot of the shows that we've covered. Right. Right. Like if there is that kind of ill ease before you even get to opening night, it really can it can tank a show. Now, that doesn't mean that it's immediately that means it's going to be a flop. Oh, and there, are, there are there are totally, you know, um, there have been, you know, fantastic examples of when a book doctor or a, another director or, you know, uh, there's a last minute cast change have absolutely fixed a show and it's gone on to be the biggest, fattest hit ever. Uh, but usually if you're having big enough problems that people are being brought in to fix things while you're in previews, you know, while the show is getting to that you know, marching along to that opening night date where things have to be finalized. You know right. what I mean? Um, it, it definitely doesn't spell like positivity, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that things are, are, are everyone's feeling great about the product. We're you know? all winning Tonys, which yeah. ironically, Angela did win a Tony. She won a Tony Award for this. Well, that, OK, so, you know, I think we need to start talking about the fantastic score that's in the show. But yes. Angela got really great reviews, obviously won a Tony Award. Jerry Herman's score got fantastic reviews. Uh, several other cast members in the show, many of the people who were in MAME. Uh, that became <laughs> cast in this. Uh, so there were some redeeming things, but I think, you know, the biggest thing we mentioned that at the beginning is the fabulous score that Jerry Herman wrote. And he wrote a lot of it. You know, Angela Lansbury asking for all these changes. I think her opening number changed several times throughout the process. Right. And they're all fantastic songs. But yeah. right now, let's talk about what actually opened on Broadway, right? Right. And I've got to say that the overture of this show... I was going to say that oh. today I was okay in my car driving back from whatever I was doing this afternoon. I was re-listening to the cast album and I was like the overture to Dear World. It's, so it's one of the best. It's and so beautiful. Like I could just listen to the overture and be happy. It's so good. I'm and so I glad never you say that about that. the overture because I really I find them frustrating most of the time. I'm like, the why are you telling me all these songs before we even get to the show? But the way that he builds this overture, especially with that giant fat trumpet solo. Oh, gosh. It just sets up the world. It actually sets up the world. It does what an overture should do, which is it immediately gives the audience this sense of I am in Paris. Right. And I get to live in the city of love and light. And like, that's how it feels, right? Like you're transported to this place with right. that overture. Um, which most well, and, overtures don't do. And right? I will just, I'm going to add in real quick, 
a lot of the shows we're going to cover on this actually, I think, have fantastic overtures. There's something about flop overtures that <laughs> put, they highlight the best parts of it. And it's one of the reasons these shows become, I think, I don't know. Anyway, I, right, because will... it introduces you to it, like right. it draws you in. Yeah, I, there right? are some really great flops with really amazing overtures. Uh, yes. But this is, I think, one of the best overtures Broadway has ever seen, period. Flop or not. Agreed. Continue. Yes, Sorry. I, no, it's fine. And there are some really lovely songs in this. I mean, infamously, everyone does. Um, I don't want to know. Right. Like oh, that's gosh. one of those that every leading lady wants to do in her cabaret or at a concert at Lincoln Center or, you know, and it's a beautiful song and it it warms my heart. But one thing I do not like about when they take it out of context uh-huh. is when they don't do the tempo change. Okay. That tempo change is for a reason. Right. Jerry Herman wrote it on purpose. Well, and that's class. Purpose. Classic Jerry Herman, you know, um, tempo changes are very much his, it's one of his like tricks. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, but it cha- it changes the per- the point of view of the song. It shows where the character is going. Right. Why the character is hurting. Like it shows all of these things with such a simple change in tempo. Right. And, and it can make a world of difference. And so it really it saddens me well, <laughs> whenever and if there's I hear a- someone do it at concert. They just don't do it. Well, and if there's one song, I think that eclipses the, the entirety of what this show is meant to say. And it is that song, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the idea of. If, if there aren't children playing anymore, if there aren't all of these things, if the world is really changing and is so as evil as you say it is, don't even tell me because I don't even want to know. I'm, I'm not listening. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. I'm not listening. Because, I'm going to stay in my blissful world over here. Thank you. Yeah. What's the point? And it really eclipses like why she's crazy. It's like, well, you know, there at some point and you see this with older people, it, it older people become set in their ways about certain things because they've experienced i mean i'm in my 30s and i feel like i've experienced a lot and there are things that i'm like yeah tiktok but like when that first happened i was like i don't i don't want to know like I, I have been through myspace i have been through friendster i don't i don't want to know I, I don't know uh, that's how i feel about clubhouse there you um, go gosh. No, but Um, it's true. And I think that anyone can relate to this. I know it's very much a part of the age of the character. Um, But I also I think that especially after 2020, a lot of us are like, I don't want to (laughs) know. I don't want to know. It's very it's don't very timely. Yeah. I mean, but it's not the only amazing song in this. Garbage is wonderful. It's so good. And I think it was it became one of B. Arthur's signature songs after As this it music. should be. Came out. Uh uh, you know, Kisser Now is one of those cabaret standards that men and women sing. It is so hauntingly beautiful. Mm. Uh, I'm actually shocked it's a Jerry Herman song because it 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 goes to these really rich and deep, I don't know, just romantic places that I'm not used to hearing in yeah. Mame or Hello Dolly or right. things like that, you know. How has no one ever given me for my book, I've never said I love you? Like, I, I feel mean, like I should have had that in my book years ago. I mean, I Sutton totally Boster sings it. it. So again, why did no one say, Christina, here you go. Danny Gerwin always handed me Sutton songs. <laughs> I mean, just he didn't have you long enough to give you this song. Is that what I it mean, was? I, oh, I, I have definitely given people uh, Kisser Now and I've definitely given people the title song, which 
The title song is also really great, but it is quintessential Jerry Herman. That and yes. uh, One Person are songs that could easily be in MAME or yeah. Hello, Dolly. Well, you know? and the thing I love about One Person is, I mean, I think that that can be used in all kinds. It's still timely to this day. Right. I just wish that they, I don't know if it was one of those that got added last minute with all these cut songs that happened during this process, but it just, the lyrics, the music goes there, but the lyrics don't follow it. It's so repetitive that Mm -hmm. it loses its luster at a certain point. Um, And it's impact. And maybe that would be different with staging right sure. like certain songs are much better visual like i'm sure tea party visually oh is my gosh oh the my most gosh. ridiculous as it should be i mean there are iconic lyrics in the tea party are you ready for some of these okay okay i will consult my voices most have passed into my hot water bottle except on fridays when i hear them everywhere there you go i mean i mean perfection but then at the same time like this is such a nutty song but there's this one beautiful moment between Angela Lansbury and one of the other ladies um, where she, <laughs> the other woman's like, you always wear your fake pearls. I don't want your fake pearls. And uh, Angela says, the more you wear pearls, the more they become real. And then the woman counters that with, isn't that the same as memories? And oh. I was like, oh, Jerry Herman, way to get me. I loved that. I mean, well, and that whole scene is really a nod to the Mad Tea Party scene from Alice in Wonderland, you know, with the Mad Hatter in the March Hare speaking nothing but riddles that absolutely make sense when you analyze them, you know, to Alice. And which is why we made that our clue uh, for the photo clue. Um, um, I mean, it's also very much what happens in the play as well that this show's based on. Oh, absolutely. You know what song has like really like captured my attention from this score? It's each tomorrow morning. The lyrics in it are really incredible. Um, Like, there is no long lost star you cannot reach tomorrow morning. You will see your life in a different light, crisp and crystal clear and quite worth beginning over. Like, it's just, it's it's about, like, taking every day to be the better version of yourself. Which is such you don't a, have to answer to your old self anymore, right? Well, it's such a, a classic. Hermanism is th- those kind of songs. You know what yeah. I mean? And um, it's funny that that you've picked that song out specifically because I don't know if you knew this. The show, the working title was "Tomorrow Morning" before hey. they came up with "Dear World." And during one of the revisals that we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, at one of the most problematic moments of the show is the title song, Dear World, which right. has become so popular. The entire creative team, whether in the original and in the revisals, have struggled to find out where it actually makes sense in the plot uh, and who should sing it. And so at one point when they were revising it, Jerry Herman even suggested, should we just cut the damn song? Cut oh. the damn song if it doesn't work and just call it tomorrow morning. We'll just retitle the show. And then everyone was like, well, we can't call Dear World not Dear World because what's the point of right. doing Dear World if we're not going to have the same title? But um, yeah, that's it's interesting because I think, you know, tomorrow morning has much more impact than Dear World does. And Dear World's a fantastic song. It's a gorgeous great song. song. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I get that. I hear that. I mean, the other one that... 
it also just really encapsulates Countess Aurelia is, um, and I was beautiful. I knew you were going to say that one. I mean, I mean, it's so good. And I've heard it at cabarets before, and I never connected that it was the show that it came from. But it is, it is so stunning and such a wonderful piece for a woman to work on. Right. Um, and I, I was listening to it and started crying when I first like was listening through the cast album and I was like, Oh, <laughs> me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think, I think we've highlighted one of the major reasons that this musical, and there's a lot of reasons this musical didn't work. But yeah. one of them is we have brought up like six songs that Angela Lansbury sings in the show. And I think, you know, of any of the musicals we've covered this far, a, I think this is the most material that we've specifically mentioned by name uh, because we always mention songs that, yeah. that that both of us find in our research. But I, I would venture to say this is probably the most material, uh, which just speaks to how strong the score is, yeah. but really speaks to the problem that Angela wanted all of these changes. Obviously, they structured the show around her, mm. her talents, um, you know, which won her a Tony Award, won Jerry Herman praise for his score. But for a musical that is more, it's about more than Countess Aurelia. Yeah. Might be problematic, you know. Um, even Mama Rose doesn't have that many numbers in Gypsy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like solo songs. And it also makes it problematic whenever you want to try and do it regionally. Because unless you get someone who can handle this kind of role and mm -hmm. who not just musically because i mean ultimately it's not super rangy right no um but who can handle it emotionally and really bring truth to this character and it not become a caricature of what angela did or become a caricature of what we think this kooky woman is right, right? um and really find a way to ground it and in reality somewhere when this play was written, when this, the musical even takes place in the 1940s, there was a lot of terrible happening a lot and of it's bad. very much talking about what was currently happening at the time. And when this show came out in 1969, there was also a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of turmoil happening with Vietnam um, and things of the like, but we also didn't have a great relationship with France at right. the time. So a lot of Americans were not huge, fan huge fans of the Parisian storytelling. Um, and so I don't think that's going to help sell this show. Right. An entire show that takes place in Paris about Paris problems and about the bourgeoisie kind of to a certain extent, you know? Right. Well, and to quote, you know, even Stevens' influence of the musical, because I try to anytime I can, you know, he went to the moon in 1969. You know, America was at the height of the space race. We weren't about preserving culture and art and things like that. We were about the futurist. I mean, it was, it was a tale into the 60s. It was about new. It was about this. I mean, the idea of finding oil and striking it rich, what's more American than that? So yeah. what the musical was trying to protest up against in 1969 uh, or the story itself, you know, maybe it wasn't it, relevant. No. And I think that if they had waited a decade, there are so many similarity similarities with Dear World and Sweeney Todd. And I know that's kind of weird to say, but 
you know, the idea of these crazy women taking these corporate men into the sewers and having them get lost. I mean, I'm just imagining Mrs. Lovett doing that. And oh, completely. I mean, this was obviously, Angela, without her knowing it, this was her audition for Lovett. Absolutely. I mean, hands down. And, hands uh, down. You know, I think we would have bought it more 10 years later, you know, yeah, when this, and in the, the thing 70s. Is, is like the other musicals that were on Broadway at the time were 1776. <laughs> right. I mean, we could stop there. And really, there wasn't a whole lot of other big musicals happening that year. There were a lot of flops that year. Yeah, well, in 1776, wildly successful. Yeah. I mean, for those who don't really know it, because I, I am obsessed with 1776, it's not one of my favorite shows. But there is a, I think, 45-minute break in that show with no music in it. I mean, oh, yeah. it is a famously a musical that doesn't have a lot of music in it. And so if that's what... If that's what Broadway audiences wanted, and here you have Angela Lansbury singing like seven solos, and there's other songs in the plot, like maybe not what people were looking for in 1969. No. Well, and you know, I will also bring up clue number four. Uh, this was a big deal for Jerry Herman. He, this marked his third show running on Broadway at the same time. Mame and Hello Dolly were still big fat hits on Broadway. And it could possibly be said that the market for, you know, a musical comedy with a strong female lead, that market may have already been filled. You know, I mean, you had Mame and you had Hello, Dolly still running on Broadway. It's like, is there room for a dear world when those two shows are just playing down the block? You know what I mean? Yeah. And you also had Funny Girl, the movie that was coming out this year. Right. Like huge huge yeah. huge huge so it was like we got we've got barbara we got carol we have you know all in all of these legends who stepped into dolly i mean dolly was like a revolving door for oh, yeah uh, i mean merman did it um ginger rogers did it uh i think ann miller did it i mean it was every like woman yeah. of a certain age and yeah. like it was almost like chicago is now it's like yeah. you know go see brandy in chicago it was kind of like here go go see ginger rogers in hello dolly i would have been excited about seeing angela lansbury in a lot of makeup with a nine-foot feather boa i mean that's my taste but <laughs> maybe not everybody else's um, yeah um the 1969 just wasn't a great time for like this is the turn from the 60s into the 70s and there's a lot going on with the vietnam war the civil rights movement it's just not the best time and we've seen this in, in a couple of previous episodes as well for new musicals right like there are some musicals that break through but it's it's really not there's also this big like pop culture transition happening right like we've talked we talked about this with floor of the red menace where at that time, there were all of the leading ladies of Broadway were breaking in and becoming pop icons as well. Right. But then this transition starts to happen at the end of the 60s into the 70s, where if you weren't a part of that early transition, too bad, because now musical theater is no longer pop culture worthy. Right. right. Now we want to listen to you know, the kinks and all of these other big rock and roll groups. And that is more exciting to the common listener. Right. Well, okay. So the show closes after 132 performances. So it's not, it's not, you know, one week and we're done. Like no. some of the other shows we've covered. Which it I'm sure is what bit. led to Angela being able to nab that Tony win. Oh yeah. And the cast album is gorgeous. So yes. uh, it definitely, you know, anyone can whistle, even though, uh, you know, the head of Columbia Records, 
made that happen. Uh, it still has a rawness to it. I, I, it's almost like listening to anyone can whistle. You you can tell that the show is a flop. You know, there mm-hmm. you can hear chorus make mistakes, and they just didn't have the time to fix them. Right. Uh, this is a this is a beautifully mastered cast recording. It really I mean, is. The I'm so vocals. Happy you vocals uh just layer onto that beautifully mixed orchestra uh where you where it pin pat like you said it pinpoints these uh, these horns and these strings and things like that it is a it is a gorgeous cast recording um it is and even the way that they engineered the sound so that it even to this day it travels from one ear to the other um it's during garbage magic. where they like actually it feels like they're moving on the stage and doing the staging and i was like yes Oh, it's a all of this. It's a good one. So I imagine that has helped with the longevity of this piece because yeah. it closes. Angela wasn't happy. Um, I'm sure she was very excited to find out that this may not be lasting two years uh, <laughs> due to what was coming out in the press. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and I'm sure the cast was sad to see because no actor loves especially if you're not a star who's making all the money. Um, right. Nobody likes to get a closing notice. I'm sure they were bummed about it. But, you know, mom and dad and stepbrothers and all of that fighting, it may have been a sigh of relief for uh, just the people involved because it did. It seems like it was a very, you know, tumultuous process uh, yeah. to get this thing to Broadway. Definitely. I mean, we've now seen revised versions of it, right? Like infamously, the Betty Buckley revisal. Right. right. Okay. So, so that, so how do we get there? Um, in 1998, Roundabout uh, famously did a reading because it was about to be the 30th anniversary of the show. Uh, and people have been obsessed with the score. And Roundabout does this. They're like, let's yes, they revive it. Let's revive it on Broadway. Uh, so they had a private industry reading with Cheetah Rivera, who, I think, would have been brilliant in this. And yeah. maybe that's because I did the visit, which is basically all Cheetah. The same. <laughs> I mean, but it's basically the same character, kind of, yeah. sort of, not really. Uh, but Madeline Con, Audra McDonald played Nina, played the waitress oh in it. Oh my like, gosh, that must it, have been stunning. Like, fantastic cast for this reading, and they decide not to do it. Uh, and so then it kind of does this weird regional also, thing. Also, just a side note, Alfred Molina played Sewerman, and I want to hear that man sing. I want to hear that. see if I can... I, there has to be a recording. There has I have to, to be. find it. I okay. have to find this. Okay. okay. Bobby's going to look in his magical closet of mysteries, mysteries. Or <laughs> cabinet or whatever we're calling it. Um, <laughs> but this brilliant cast. Uh, oh, and it was directed by Scott Ellis and David Thompson wrote the Who, book. And they, wait, 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 wait. Fun fact. Fun fact okay. about Scott Ellis and Cheetah. Okay. So Scott Ellis was like in the ensemble of the rink with Cheetah back in the day. And now he was directing her. Which oh, is just so great. That totally makes sense. Um, Scott Ellis, we've you know we've mentioned him on the podcast before. He directed the revival of Flora the Red Menace and worked on all of these Kendra and Ebb shows. Uh, David Thompson famously uh, wrote the book to "And the World Goes Round" that he had done as right, well. Right. Um, so, and David had, Thompson was the revisal. He picks the book, yeah. Okay. He, he wrote the new book for um, the revised version. And so did it for Roundabout, didn't end up happening. Uh, so two years later, in the year 2000, the Goodspeed Opera House, which another common thread on this podcast. Yes. Goodspeed. Goodspeed. Let's have a chat. Uh, <laughs> we should. Oh, my goodness. If you're listening, Goodspeed Opera House, come Please. on over. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, but they produced it in uh, the year 2000, starring uh, Sally Ann Howes, which, um, if you don't know who she is, she played Truly Scrumptious in the movie Chitty Chitty Bang Bang opposite um, Dick Van Dyke, which is super exciting. Yeah, which was also super famous at the time that the Dear World in 1969 came out. <laughs> But she would have played Nina at that point. Right. Probably. So it's funny. <laughs> um, uh, and so then they did it uh, in San Francisco. Um, in Utah, they did it with Maureen McGovern. This was interesting. Wow. Um, when I was listening to that other podcast uh, that had talked a little bit about the Betty Buckley version, mm. um, Jerry Herman was so excited when Maureen McGovern was brought in because uh, he at that point had felt that was the strongest singer who had ever sung any of this material. Right. Um, you know, Angela being a fantastic vocalist herself, but in her own way, um, you know, yeah, Maureen... I mean, we talked about this before with uh, anyone can whistle is she was an actor who sang right. and that's how she's always built herself. She doesn't build herself as a vocalist. Right. But Maureen McGovern was a pop star who right. also did Broadway things and could sing soprano and belt yeah, and all of this. Yeah, her range is ridiculous. Ridiculous. So Jerry Herman was like a little, like, he even says, like, I was like a kid in a candy store because, uh, you know, he got to hear this music in a way he had never heard it sung before. And it's so uh, funny because, like, our generation knows her as Marmy in Little Women. Right. Which is, like, the exact opposite. Of what this character <laughs> Or for all you flop fanatics, she was <laughs> Margaret White in the workshop of Carrie, which ties into the Betty Buckley, obviously. Yes, obviously. I mean, when you start to connect the dots, there is a world where Angela Lansbury should have started Carrie the Musical, but we'll talk about that in a later, in a later episode. <laughs> episode. Um but yeah, there was no London production of Dear World because it wasn't a success. So right. that's something that I think that um, I don't know if we've covered a lot on the podcast, but it always just assume, you know, it's assumed that these musicals, especially someone by Jerry Herman, are going to become, you know, they're going to go to London as well right. uh, and vice versa. But when these shows flop, they usually don't. Uh, and so that happened in 2013. So the original so Broadway, many years later, so many years later. And uh, do you know who directed that production starring Miss Betty Buckley? She didn't only direct. She choreographed Jillian. She, which obviously that makes sense. You know, honestly, honestly, when I think of Jillian Lynn, I, I think of cats and I know her resume is much, much longer than much that. Much more than that. But. When I think of Dear World and and choreography, there's definitely uh, okay. Cats make sense. <laughs> well, okay, but that being said, just to like jump back to the original production with um, Joe Layton, like mm -hmm. I said, that that choreography was ridiculous. Obviously, this music inspires choreographers, and I also love that they always stuck with the director choreographer as the same person, which if is you, smart. Yeah, I think that for certain shows, if you can find someone who really can dig in and be an actor's director, but also be a brilliant choreographer, I right. think that the, that is a way to really get your message out there, what right. you're trying to say with the show. Um, and so I, I love that that's an on-running theme with this right. production. Well, and, and so this revised version, uh, which... Even back when they did it with Sally Ann Howes, you know, because they've continued to tinker with it since then. Mm. But the idea at the time uh, was that Sally Ann, 
who had led that production, as well as all the reviewers who had seen that production at good speed, were finally like, this show finally works. You know what I mean? And like I said, uh, they've continued to tinker with it. But, you know, what they did was, first of all, they took a lot of the um, padding that they had put on Broadway because, you know, if if your big hit is MAME, right, if your big hit is, is MAME and that's a huge show. Hello, Dolly is a huge show. This play that it's based on is very small and yes. very intimate. The original play only has two settings. It's the cafe and <laughs> her apartment. And that's yeah. the only settings in the original play. Well, and it was a very minimalist set from my understanding. Right. Well, and we've mentioned they've kept this in the musical, you know, Sewer Man. They didn't have even names for the characters. They were describing their, you know, trades or whatever they did. And the Broadway production had big choreography and it had beautiful sets and costumes. And those costumes, man, how they didn't win a Tony for those costumes, I will never know. I mean, they were ridiculous, ridiculous. But a lot of people felt it was too big for what they were for the play that it was based on the source material, you know. And yeah. so this revisal paired all of that back. Uh, it's less people. Um, the idea is it took a lot of the the subplots and just kind of n- unnecessary stuff that that made the musical more complex out of it. And it really focused on story points. How do we get from A to Z? The corporation wants to <laughs> drill under the cafe. The Parisians don't want that to happen. So how do we how do we get from there to there, the easiest way possible. Uh, And then another big thing is they took the score and they de-Angelaized it and they um, de-Hermanized it. Uh, Instead of a giant orchestra, uh, it only has about, like, I think seven pieces in the UK production uh, to make it really sound like the kind of music you would hear coming out of a small French cafe as opposed to a giant Broadway orchestra. Um, and I'm not sure really... how I feel about that. Okay. Well, thoughts, thoughts. Well, I went and listened to a couple of the Betty Buckley songs. Okay. Or Betty Buckley recorded Dear World songs. And to me, it felt like all the magic was gone. And that's how I felt listening to the Betty Buckley version is that it was missing the intangible that right. Angela brought to it. Now, I'm not saying that everything that was in the original production that Angela was like, we have to have because I'm the star is really right. necessary. But I, I will say that there's a reason she won the Tony and it is because she brought this magic to that role. And that's, I think, you know, without having seen it, my guess would be that would be one of the main reasons why the show ran for as long as it did. Oh, it was the talk of the town. I mean, it was like you have to see if you're a fan of musical comedy, you have to see Angela Lansbury. But, you know, I mentioned that they de-Angelized it. You know, some of Angela's numbers have been switched out for numbers that were written during the creative process. Um, So the new the new songs that they've brought into this revisal that is now licensable. Right. um, Is stuff that was originally written by Jerry Herman for the original score, but then was cut. Yeah, so it's confusing. The whole licensed journey of Dear World is pretty fascinating because the original version that was licensed didn't even match what was on Broadway um, because there is a song that I love that's no longer in the show called uh, Through the Bottom of the Glass, which I think is such a, um, you know, they make a comment in the opening scene about how she only orders a glass with a little bit of wine in it, you know, um, and then she 
drinks the wine and that's enough because she doesn't want to get drunk um, because she doesn't want to be intoxicated to enjoy the world around her. But then she through the cafe through the I'm I'm actually holding up my water glass. Yes, yes, everyone. (laughs) There is a visual Uh, that you cannot see, but we're going to paint the picture. But she's, you know, looking at all of the people through the bottom of the glass, which is going to be all distorted, which obviously is what... Well, and they do call... They do hark back to it in what ended up being in the Broadway, where she says, don't look at yourself in a polished glass. Look at yourself in a polished brass pot or something like it was specific um, oh yes and mm-hmm. and she says that um in, in one of the songs i don't remember which but yeah and and i love that image oh of, it's just it's okay yeah. to look distorted it's okay that you aren't perfect it's okay that you you are who you are no matter right. what well, and so Angela did that in the show at one point. So, you know, they that was in at one point, but the new version has a sensible woman, which Angela sang out of town in Boston. Uh, so it's not like this. I don't think anything is brand new material wise. I think they've maybe altered some things, but mm-hmm. a lot of it was through that tumultuous creative process. Um, so do we think that this is something that is going to be able to have a revival? I mean, especially like post- 2020 post Black Lives Matters. Do we think, I mean, considering there was already a production where Audra played Nina, which I love, I think that that's totally doable again and having colorblind casting. Yeah, I think that Dear World could make it back to Broadway either as an encore situation or roundabout. I don't know if it's ever going to have a commercial run. I wonder Um, if it would do better off Broadway in a smaller house. Possibly. I mean, you, but you would have to have a star. And I think like Mm. you touched upon, I think it's one of those ones that it's time to bring in. I mean, Audra would make a fantastic Aurelia now, Mm. right? Yes. And, um, but I think a a person of color in the lead, either off Broadway or at one of the, like Lincoln Center or at um, Roundabout or, you know, Encores, encores make sense. I mean, the score is so beautiful uh, that encores absolutely make sense. The yeah, York, they could get the full orchestra. Right. The York where uh, Tyne Daly did it for a bit as well is technically off Broadway. That's um, but it didn't it didn't like run forever there. Uh, no, I think that it would be really interesting to revisit it post COVID because it's so fantastical. But yet so much of it is very timely um, and I think would be something that a lot of people could connect to. Well, it's very much and um, it's very much the sentiment around right now is is we the America, not all of America, but a lot <laughs> of America, the people who go to the theater, <laughs> uh, they do want to stick it to the man. And they, we, we, we are at this point, I think, in our culture in the United States where we want to preserve our history. You know, Hamilton it has really, oh, yeah. I think, h- highlighted that. And also examine our history. I think that's important because that's something that this show does similar to what we were talking about with Anyone Can Whistle. It's about holding up a mirror to yourself right. and how you see the world. Um, but the big thing for me would be is if it got a revival that we get the full overture. Which might be difficult if it's not the same song list. I uh, actually don't know if the overture has been revised. I'm going to need you to add it back in. Producers, just put it back in. Thanks. It's one of those weird things where sometimes, like Follies, 
famously the prologue to Follies features music that is no longer in the show. Right. You know, and they're just like, it's a really great prelude into the musical. And that's it, that's the thing with this overture. I don't I don't really pay attention to the song melodies that are in it. I pay attention right. to what it does for me to draw me into the world. Right. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, the overture as presented on the original Broadway cast recording needs to be preserved like somewhere. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I don't know if this one was a complete analyzation of the. We made up that word, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> of the musical as some of our previous episodes. Uh, but I definitely think we got the point across about how much we love this score. It's so beautiful. Again, I, I don't think we've ever mentioned this many song titles. No. Episode. No, and the lyrics just really are stunning work on Jerry Herman's part. Oh, my goodness. Well, okay. In two weeks, you can join us again for episode 10, which it's so crazy to think that we're going to be on episode 10. I know, episode 10. That's so exciting. Uh, But before our next episode, we also have After the Bows, where we're going to get to talk to some really fun people about Dear World. I mean, I think one of them might be a super fan who may or may not have done the show before. But anyway, you're going to have to check to see. Make sure to tune in for that. And then, of course, pay attention for the clues for episode 10. Yes. Speaking of which, Bobby, you should give them the first clue for our next episode. Okay. The first clue for episode 10 is this. Andy Carl starred in this musical that was based on a film. I mean, that could be like 10 shows. Exactly. That We're were making this flops. difficult. So just pick one out of a hat, ladies and gentlemen, and go with it. And make sure to DM us because we don't want you to give it away in case you get it right. Yeah. Now, where are you going to find these other clues, Bobby? On our social media. Social media. And where are we at on social media, Christine? I don't know why we're singing. I don't know. But because we're a musical theater podcast. No, but seriously, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, our website, www.myfavoriteflop.com or TikTok. That's right. Tickety Talks. And you can find us on all the socials with the same handle at My Favorite Flop. Because no one took it before us. We're lucky ducks. Um, (laughs) So look for us there. Make sure to like us, follow us, do all the things. You can find the podcast uh, anywhere you listen to podcasts. We would prefer if you listen on Apple Podcasts, click the subscribe button, which is free. We have heard that somehow people think you have to pay for podcasts. You do not have to pay, my friends. No paying. Do not pay for this podcast. Uh, (laughs) Just press the subscribe button. Leave us a five-star review. Uh, It helps people like you find this podcast uh, by pushing us up in the ratings. And yeah, Tell everyone you know how much you love us. Um, All right, Christina, do you have some parting words for our listeners this week? I do. The vaccine is here. So be like Hamilton and don't throw away your shot. Bye. Bye. Bye.